The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2019 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycnd.com. Hey guys. So good to be together. I was, I was on the plane making my way back for this event. And I was sitting next to a guy from Scotland named Ewan. We had nine hours together. And during the time together, he talked to me about religion and faith and what he was doing in life. It was a broad-ranging conversation. He was not a person of faith. He, he told me he was nothing with no hostility. Just, he just had no faith. He asked me what I did. I told him I was the pastor of a church in Erbil. And he said, where's that? And I said, it's in northern Iraq, kind of tucked in between Iran and Turkey and Syria, Saudi Arabia and the rest of Iraq below us. He asked, I think a question a lot of people want to ask me, why in the world would you go do that? Of course, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of answers that I could give to that. It was a genuine question, no animosity to him, uh, and just puzzlement about why anyone would do it. Well, I said, I truly believe that this man Jesus rose again from the dead. I mean, I really believe that. And if it's true... There's nothing that he could ask of me that's too much for me to do. So when he asks us to go into all the world, I said I'd go. Far enough, he said. Far enough. Fair enough. It was a good response. Jesus is the most important, the most amazing, the most loving, the most famous, the most powerful, the most forgiving person you can ever meet personally. We talked about that some last night, but I want to talk more about it today, just focusing in on this man, Jesus. In our church in Iraq, I've been preaching through the book of Mark. Uh, we started back in August, and I'm just preaching through the text in the book of Mark. We've seen how Jesus healed the leper, how he calmed the storm, how he forgave sin, how he made the lame to walk, how he casts out demons, how he raises the dead, how he gives hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind, all which point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Yet surprisingly, the religious leaders of the day and even those closest to him could not see him for who he was, the Son of God. The religious leaders were jealous they wanted to kill him, and his closest companions were blind to his true identity. And then we come to these verses that we just read, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 37, where Jesus is walking on the dusty roads of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asks them this question of his identity, who do people say that I am? And they give answers. And then he begins to teach them. So understand, when Jesus asked this question, who do people say that I am? 
the disciples have done some research. I don't know how they did their research, but they report in. It's like they've been to the Jerusalem Mall and they've got a little clipboard and they, you know, they've taken a poll. Uh, excuse me, uh, Jesus, you know, this man Jesus, he's becoming really popular. Who, who do you think he is? Uh, uh, John the Baptist. Okay, thank you. You know, they write it down. And, excuse me, excuse me, uh, Jesus fella, uh, what's your idea about him? Uh, Elijah. Okay, yeah, great, thank you, very good. And so they're ready with their answers. It's one of the first polls ever recorded. You know, like 38% of the people think you're John the Baptist, and 32% think you're Elijah, and the other 30% believe you to be various prophets, or something like that. It went something like that. Now, when, when the disciples say that Jesus is John the Baptist, come from the dead, John the Baptist had been executed by King Herod, or Elijah, who had been taken up by God in the chariot, in one of the Old Testament prophets, or one of the other Old Testament prophets, they think that they're being positive, even complimentary about Jesus. Perhaps they think it's high praise for Jesus to be in the company of those people. But it's not. It's not even close. John the Baptist, Moses, Elijah, all the other prophets will one day fall down at the feet of Jesus and honor him as the king. They don't see that yet. Jesus asks another question. Who do you think I am? He's putting them to the test. And Peter answers, you're the Christ. Now let me give you some context to his answer. The common view of the Christ was that he was the perfect, victorious king. That the Christ would come and kick out the Romans who had the boot on the neck of the Jewish people in Israel. Peter was only half right. Christ would also be a suffering servant, which they could not see, which they could not imagine. So, so Jesus begins to teach, to correct the disciples' misunderstanding about him with four things that are about to happen to him, that he will suffer, that he will be rejected, that he will be killed and that he will rise again from the dead. He says all that in verse 31 of chapter 8. Here's what each of those four things mean to Jesus. Mark is very, very much like a movie script. It's just images. And so Mark moves quickly, but from other texts in the Gospels, we know that suffer many things has a lot of meaning in them. Let me walk through each of the four things. Suffer, rejected, killed and rise again. So suffer many things means arrested at night by a mob. Jesus was lynched. He's bound. He's spit upon. He's jeered and mocked. He's punched when blindfolded and defenseless. Thorns are pressed into his head. He's hit by rods on the head. He's scourged with whips. 
he's forced to carry his own instrument of torture and death, the cross. That's suffer many things. He also said he would be rejected by the leaders of Israel. Now, the leaders of Israel were both political and religious. And so they longed for a Messiah. They prayed for a Messiah. Yet yet they were supposed to pray for a Messiah. And yet, when Jesus stood before them, they could not recognize him for who he was. He was rejected in a reprehensible, unlawful trial with hostile witnesses who had already made up their minds. They'd made up their minds to kill him back when he healed the paralytic in the early parts of his ministry. That's what Jesus meant when he said rejection. And thirdly, they would kill him. Both the secular rulers of the day, the Romans and the religious political rulers of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, joined together in sort of an unholy alliance to kill him viciously. It wasn't good enough just to put him to death. They made sure it was a humiliating death. They killed him violently, horribly, naked and exposed after carrying the cross to the city's garbage dump called Golgotha. Already weakened by torture, he was nailed to the cross. And after six hours of hanging on nails, hammered through his hands and feet, six hours of sheer agony, he died. That's what Jesus means when he says, be killed. And fourthly, Jesus said he would rise again from the dead. For the Christ to suffer and be rejected or killed, it did not come close to any common understanding of who the Christ would be. Which is why Jesus is teaching about it. But there was absolutely no comprehension of what rise from the dead meant to the disciples or or to the Jews in general. There was this vague understanding of resurrection. So when Jesus stands at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, after Lazarus has been dead for four days, he's having a conversation with Lazarus' sister Martha. And she says, yes, I know, I know he will rise again from the dead on the last day. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I am the resurrection. I am the one. He who dies, though he dies, he shall live again if you believe in me. Jesus means literally rise from the dead. So in Mark 8, verse 32, this was so beyond their comprehension, both the suffering and the resurrection, that Peter takes him aside. It bears repeating. Let me me read chapter 8, verse 32 again to you. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning, Jesus turns. He sees the disciples. He rebuked Peter and in so doing is rebuking the disciples as well. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So understand, Peter Peter got the title right, Christ, the Christ. But he had a wrong understanding of what Jesus must do to be Christ. Jesus doesn't mince words. He says to Peter, 
get behind me, Satan. We talked about Satan last night. Get behind me, Satan. You have on your mind human thoughts. You know, it's a, it's a frightening thing. It should frighten all of us, this thought that if you speak humanly about Jesus, you become the mouthpiece of Satan. Even, even if you call him Christ, you should beware of that. So it's, it's very important to, to know the difference between the things of man and the things of God. Jesus tells us in the next verses. In verse 34, he calls the crowd to himself. He calls all of them. With his disciples, it says in verse 34. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, now notice, this is, this is an open call. It's for anyone, Jesus said. You don't have to be just Jewish. You don't have to be born that way. He says, if anyone would follow me. And notice Jesus uses this word, if. There's a choice. If you follow him in faith, then your whole life should be given to him, to the death, even death on the cross. You know, historically, it took 300 years for Christians to adopt the symbol of the cross as the symbol of Christianity. And that's because it was so horrible and so awful a way to die that they could not imagine it being the symbol of the Christian faith. And yet, it's the exact right symbol. People who saw it, people who actually saw crucifixions, it was just too cruel, too harsh, too awful. But Jesus says, pick it up, pick it up. The way of the cross may be quick, I have five people in my church in Iraq under death threats for their faith in Jesus. And one of the hardest things about leaving my congregation in Iraq and coming back to America is just knowing what they sacrificed to follow Jesus, to, to deny themselves and to follow Jesus. Because, frankly, brothers and sisters, I long to see it in the American church and it's missing. This peace. I was doing a baptism interview. I was getting ready to baptize a woman from Iran. She's a part of our church, but she's Iranian. Little one-year-old sitting on her lap. I said, Asma, you know that there will be people in Iran that want to kill you for your baptism. And she said, I know. Of course she knows. She knows better than me. She's got a little one-year-old sitting on her lap. And she says, but Jesus is worth it. He calls me to follow the way of the cross. It may be quick. It also may be slow. A steady life of faithfulness to Jesus, demonstrated by service and kindness and love to others, where you spend your life for him, for Christ, not for yourself. And you should know, just like Asma said to me, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Maybe when you read this, it seems too hard to you. Maybe 
like Peter, you, you feel compelled to correct Jesus. You, you want to try and help Jesus be more reasonable, more accommodating. Jesus understands. It's why he gives three reasons why it's worth it. So first reason Jesus gives. He knows what he said. Pick up your cross. And here's three reasons why. In verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So human thinking is to cling to our lives. It's a natural thing, a natural, a natural idea. But Jesus commands and promises that if you give up your grip on life, of running your life your way, and live for Jesus and the gospel, you will gain life. Those are Jesus' words. This is not Mac telling you this. This is what Jesus said. There's two parts, notice, to gaining life according to Jesus. We live for Jesus and the gospel. And I think that's important. Many people would be happy to do the first uh, without the second. To live for Jesus is seemingly easy. Uh, that, you know, sure, I'll live for Jesus. He's a great guy. He taught about love. He's for peace. I can shape Jesus into the way I want to have him in my own image. So he could be the liberating warrior king. It's like Peter thought. A kind and compassionate caregiver for the poor and hungry. A doctor who heals. A teacher who has come up with one of the most compelling moral structures the world has ever seen. But, but Jesus doesn't allow that. He says, for my sake and the gospel. So if you want this bargain, you want life, you want to gain life, true life, both here on earth and eternal life, you must understand and apply not just who Jesus was, but the gospel to your life. So you must understand the gospel, the good news, the core message of the Christian faith. And to understand the good news is to understand the bad news first. The bad news is we're all dying, all of us. One of, one of the most amazing things that happened over the last number of weeks was uh, as I was making my way back to come here to be with you, uh, my mother-in-law became ill. Leanne actually came back earlier to be with her, to take care of her, which she did. And um, then about three weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, she told Leanne, my mother-in-law told Leanne, I'm dying. I'm dying. Leanne was by her bedside. My son Tristan was reading scriptures to her. She loved the Lord. She's had an amazing life. She was excited about me being with you. She prayed for you. She loved that I would tell the young people, as she called you, the gospel. And two weeks ago, she took her last breath. She died. Leanne by her side. Tristan reading scriptures to her. She was a good and godly woman. 
it was a great privilege to speak at her funeral on December 16th. We miss her. We're in mourning. But she wanted me to be here with you because this is important. And we will all come to that day, that catastrophic day, when we take our last breath. And this is how it will go. You will come to a catastrophic moment when you take one last breath. And then you will take another breath. And you will not be here anymore. You will be there. We'll come to that day. And we will see that He is holy, and we are not. You do not want to come to that moment and meet God, counting on yourself to be accepted by Him. The good news is, that's the bad news. All that's the bad news. We're dying, we're sinful, we're unholy. That's bad news. The good news is that Jesus died in our place of judgment so that we might be forgiven and stand before God in the righteousness that comes from His life to us. The only way you will be able to stand before God is if you are found in Christ. That's, that's how the Bible describes the followers of Jesus, those who are in Christ. So let me read you this passage from the book of Philippians Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul is speaking, and he's talked about all the great things that he used to do under the law. Just a couple verses. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may find Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what the Bible means about people of faith, those who are in Christ. So Leanne's mother, when she died on December 12th, stood before God on that day, not saying, look how good I am, look how great I've been. No, she said, with him, I'm with him, and she'll point to Jesus. And he will say, she's mine, that one's mine. I know her. She's my daughter. She stands before God in the righteousness of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is not just that we're forgiven. It's also that we gain the righteousness of Jesus for our lives, for eternity. That's why Jesus is on this march to the cross throughout the gospels. He sets his face like a flint on the path to Jerusalem and the cross. He knows what's coming. So when we talk about those four things that he will suffer and be rejected, and be killed, and, be, and rise from the dead. He knows those things are coming. But he knows that he will be condemned in our place. So he makes this 
offer to us. It was the plan all along. The cross was not an accident. He took our sin as a perfect sacrifice for, for us. The extra special good news of Jesus is that his work on the cross allows for us to be forgiven, granted righteousness, and to know God's gracious gift of eternal life. All we do is we turn from the sin, the sin of rejecting his rule in our lives and disbelief, and trust him, believe him. That's how we gain life. That's how Leanne's mother gained life. So it's in our best self-interest. Don't cling to your life. Give it up for Jesus and the gospel. Secondly, Jesus gives sort of a profit and loss statement in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now, human thinking is to value the world over the soul. I mean, the soul's invisible. You can't really see it. I mean, might as well trade it for something that you can, right? But Jesus says, don't make a foolish deal. The soul is eternal. It will live forever. We're all headed for one of two destinies, either to be with Christ or to lose the most valuable possession that you own and live out eternity in what Jesus calls outer darkness. So along, alongside that, Jesus asks this rhetorical question. What can someone give for their soul? And the answer is nothing. Nothing is so valuable. And yet... Over the years, I've watched students trade their souls in their attempt to gain the world. They trade their souls for money or power or sex or acclaim, for acceptance, prestige, admiration. And it's all a lie. Your soul is valuable. Believe Jesus. Don't believe Satan's lie. Remember, Satan always over-promises and under-delivers. Your soul is valuable. Don't trade it for trash, trinkets, the baubles of the world. And thirdly, there will be a reckoning. So Jesus says in verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, if we think about Jesus saying this in his day, in his context, it was preposterous that Jesus, this itinerant preacher in the backwoods of Palestine with a bunch of chumps called disciples, could talk about coming again in God's glory with holy angels to judge the world. That was just ludicrous to anyone listening to him. And they thought so. Even his own family thought he'd lost his mind. But today, 2,000 years later, it's a little more plausible now. 
Jesus never broke a promise he made, ever. He promised these things would happen, that he would suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again from the dead, and he did. You can bank on this promise too, that there will come a day when you will care not one whit what people think about you. When you stand before the most powerful creatures you've ever seen and their captain Jesus at the front. The Lord of hosts. Listen, angels are not little cupids on Valentine Day cards. Every time angels show up in the Bible, people fall down in trembling fear. It's the Lord of hosts, full of glory. And you will long for the day when you had opportunities to stand up for Jesus, even in the face of withering opposition and threats and death. You will long to go back to that day and say, oh, that I could stand for Christ, that I could stand unashamed. Jesus is speaking to a shame and honor culture. Some of you probably come from shame and honor cultures. I live in shame and honor cultures in the Middle East. And the worst thing that they could imagine was God being ashamed of them. The opposite of shame is honor. So, so we should ask the question, how do we honor the name of Jesus? How do you do that? Well, we deny ourselves and we pick up the cross and we follow Him. We live for Him and His gospel without shame to the death. After the resurrection, the disciples understood. They were chumps no longer. On the day of Pentecost, they were no longer cowering in fear, ashamed of Jesus in some upper room. They were blind no more. Those chumps became world changers. And like I said last night, it's what I most long for you. Because in the power of Christ, you can be. If your greatest fear is sin, your greatest desire is to honor Jesus, you will change the world. There they were, these disciples preaching in the streets of good news. Some went to jail, other faced abuse. Many faced unbelieving families, many died. But they were not ashamed. Three reasons to pick up the cross. Three reasons to die for Jesus. Number one, it's in your best self-interest. Not to cling to your life, but to give it up for Jesus and the gospel. For you will gain life. Number two, it's a bad trade. To give your soul for what the world offers. Don't do that. It's bankrupt. Number three, you will want to have a legacy of honoring Jesus because the day of reckoning will come. And oh friends, we live in an adulterous generation. Adulterous generation means unfaithful. Just going from person to person when you were meant to be with him faithful 
when I think back, I know it's a long time ago, back in the Paleozoic era when I was your age, I went to a small group Bible study on campus. I went to Rhodes in Memphis. And uh, there was, you know, 10 of us there. In this Bible study, we bonded. It was sweet fellowship. A couple of them came to the Lord. I was wild. I had, you won't believe this, a huge red afro. No kidding. I'll show you a picture. I got a couple. Just out of the party scene. I'd only been a Christian months. I show up on university campus. I meet this sweet little tridelt. That was Leanne, my wife. We got married while we were still in school. Don't tell your parents. I recommend it. You know, when I look back at that small group, six of the ten are not walking with Jesus now. Four of us still walk with the Lord. They got married to non-Christians. They traded success for Jesus. They took on money and power. They did amazing things in the world. They were brilliant, brilliant people. If you had told me then that six of the ten would trade their souls for the world, I, I don't think I would have believed you. But they did. Oh, I so long for you not to do that. Look, if, if what Jesus says is a lie, or if he himself were a madman, or if all this stuff is made up or corrupted, as our Muslim friends say, then you should run away from Jesus and Christianity and Christians. But if he died and was raised to life, you should give up your human thinking and follow him totally, fully, regardless of what it costs you on earth. Take hold of him now. And one day, he'll look at you and say, yeah, he's mine. She's with me. Fair enough? It's like this. So, we have a good friend. His name's Wesley, Wesley Career. Maybe you've heard of him. He's All-American at uh, University of Louisville. One of the greatest athletes at University of Louisville. He ran track for them. Went on to have a stellar career in marathons. And he's a personal friend of our family. My sister kind of adopted him as an international student. He was from Kenya. All the great runners seem to be from East Africa. And um, uh, he just, he came to Christ uh, he was at all our family celebrations, Thanksgivings, Christmas. He couldn't go home to Kenya. Uh, he became a great friend. And uh, after his college career, which was stellar, he was just inducted into UofL's uh, Hall of Fame uh, just, just a couple months ago. Uh, Wesley uh, invited us to go see him run in the Chicago Marathon. Now, he's won L.A. twice. He's won Boston. He was in the Olympics representing Kenya. I mean, we're talking high-level athlete here. And uh, I'd never been to a marathon. It was very exciting. Um, 
and my parents went. He, <laughs> uh, he put them in the, in the grandstand, and they watched the Jumbotron. And the rest of us, there was about 10 of us in the family, that we went from station to station to watch him run. It was so exciting. Uh, 30,000 people ran. Millions watched from the sidelines. And um, Wesley was in the top 10. In fact, he finished second in the Chicago Marathon. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, so... We're, he, he motions to us, the whole family, he said, come on, go with me. So we go with him, you know, they do all kinds of interviews with TV, you know, and, uh, you know, drug tests and all this stuff. And at every, at every stop, you know, I'm getting ready to walk in with, with Wesley and, and uh, there'd be this guy in a suit, big beefy guy, you know, a little curly thing in his ear, security guard, hand in my chest. Oh, I'm with him. He said, I don't care who, what, what you say. Uh, it doesn't matter what you say. And he looks over at Wesley, and Wesley, oh, oh, yeah, he's with me. Come on. I, yeah, I'm with him. I'll walk in the room. That's what you're looking for when Jesus comes with his holy angels. Yeah. He's with me. Let me pray for us. Oh, God, I beg you. Touch hearts here. I so long. I so long for every person here to know you in fullness, to give their lives to you, to be true to you all the days of their life, to pick up their cross and follow you. Oh God, I pray that for them. I pray, Father, they not make bad bargains with their souls. I pray, Father, that they'll see what you have done through your son Jesus to purchase a ransom for them if they will but believe. Oh God, I pray, I pray, Father, that they would be recognized by you on the last day. That they will stand for you unashamed in their dorms, in classrooms, with friends, family, those that would oppose them even. And especially as the world gets darker and darker, I pray that they would shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved and adulterous generation I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at conyc.com.